This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My guest today is Roger Ferguson, former vice chairman of the Fed and current president and CEO of TIAA, the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association. He's got a brilliant financial mind, and we have a lot to learn from him. Unfortunately, I had to say, Steve, uh, in the modern era, um, the degree of financial literacy is remarkably low. Uh, I think there are very, very few households uh, that benefit from the kind of day in and day out discussion of finance the way I did. And I think that has played into you know, some of the challenges that we're confronting here economically, including the retirement crisis. My interview with Roger in a moment, but now what's ahead? Well, presidential politics are dominating. We've got a debate Tuesday night for the South Carolina primary on Saturday. Can Mike Bloomberg come back to life? What will happen to Bernie? Can he keep his lead? Can the other candidates emerge? And on the economy side, Wednesday, new home sales. Thursday, initial jobs claims. Is the economy still humming along? Durable goods, very critical to the economy. We get that report on Thursday. Friday, even more important, personal income report comes in. Personal spending report comes in. Are incomes still rising? Are people still spending more? Absolutely crucial for the economy ahead. And now, I hope you'll enjoy hearing my interview with Roger Ferguson. In it, he shares his remarkable personal background, very critically, what he did on 9-11, when the financial markets looked like they might freeze up in the aftermath of that attack. And also, his thoughts on the current crisis in retirement and student debt. Our special guest today is Roger Ferguson, Jr. He's president and CEO of TIAA since 2008. And during his long and distinguished career, he also served as vice chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1999 to 2007. TIAA is a nonprofit corporation, describes itself as a nonprofit corporation owning for-profit subsidiaries. The formal name was the Teachers Insurance and Annuities Association, College Retirement and Equities Fund. Back when I was growing up, it was TIA CREF. The company was started by Andrew Carnegie in 1918. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but today, uh, you have more than $1 trillion in combined assets under management. You serve over 5 million people, active and retired. You're the leading provider of financial services in the academic world, also medical, cultural, government, think tanks. So, Roger, begin by describing the unique background. I mentioned Andrew Carnegie back in 1918. Give us a little history of uh, this uh, extraordinary organization. Well, you start in the right place. Uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, was on the board of Cornell, uh, and he went up at Ithaca, and he saw some of the leading minds of the time uh, unable to retire or retiring into abject poverty. Uh, And he thought that was completely unacceptable. As you know, he was a big believer in education, though he himself did not have much formal education. Well, he did so, uh, famously libraries, which were uh, the high tech of the time for going for information. I remember absolutely. things called card catalogs, which uh, you may remember too. <laughs> I remember them well. I remember Carnegie libraries uh, all over the place so here in New York City, also in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. So he looked out and brought together some of the uh, leading minds of the day and created uh, the first Uh, concept of a defined contribution and defined benefit plan. He didn't use those words at the time, uh, 
the theory of the case was that uh, teachers uh, and others on college campuses would contribute some money, their employers would contribute money, it would be professionally managed, and when they were ready to retire, it would be returned to them uh, initially in the form of what we call a fixed annuity, which is basically you know, guaranteed income for a lifetime. And that uh, predates Social Security by about 17 years uh, and uh, was then and still is actually a pretty revolutionary idea. And Steve, if I can continue the story, you mentioned uh, CREF. Uh, that was uh, created uh, in 1952 uh, by another genius, a gentleman named Bill Greeno. And uh, Dr. Greeno, he had a PhD uh, in economics from Harvard, looked around the world of his day, this was uh, right after the Second World War, and saw that the next big challenge that uh, retirement savers faced was inflation. Uh, and he and his colleagues developed this concept of putting some retirement money into equities in order to get some protection from inflation. And that idea in 1952 was equally revolutionary uh, because the theory of the case about retirement then was it should only be in safe and secure assets like government bonds. Um, and many people thought of the equity market as the plaything of the super wealthy. And so those two geniuses, um, uh, Andrew Carnegie in 1918, Bill Greeno in 1952, uh, both in their own ways revolutionized retirement in America, and we sit here 101 years later uh, standing on the, the shoulders of those two giants. So it started out with college, but uh, obviously quickly expanded to all facets of education. And uh, one of the revolutionary parts was that uh, these accounts were portable. If you went, say, from Cornell to Princeton or to uh, Oberlin or wherever, the account went with you. You didn't have to worry about, oh, am I vested or am I going to lose something? It was your property. Exactly right. Uh, and you know, that has proven to be really important because the nature of higher education was indeed, as you point out, one might start as an assistant professor in one location and move to another uh, and become a tenured professor and then maybe move to a second or a third. And it, I think um, that this is one of the reasons that America has managed to have you know, the leading uh, higher ed sector is that we've allowed people to work in the sector, explore career options as they unfold, and still be certain of having a really good retirement. Uh, and so I think in some ways this has been, in a quiet way, a big service to uh, America and has allowed us to be uh, the leading uh, capitalist economy of the day. A little bit of your own background. Uh, it's unusual in that uh, you almost seem to have been weaned, uh, not just on mother's milk, but on stock investing and economic data. Your 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 father, who was grew up in the Great Depression, government worker, but he was fascinated with investing, and uh, got you interested. Describe the kitchen table conversations you had, uh, what you watched on every week on Friday night. Walk us through that, how uh, you got exposed at a fairly young age to a world most people don't get exposed to until much later. <laughs> oh, uh, thank you, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling here because it's, it's so true. Um, I thought my upbringing was the norm, and only later in, in life did I realize that it's the uh, kinds of things that other people laugh at, chuckle at, and scratch their heads at. But indeed, uh, you're right. Um, my mother 
uh, was a public school teacher and really believed that education was this magical gift uh, that no one could take away from you. And so she encouraged me to study hard, read as much as I could and stay in school for as long as possible. I don't think she'd imagined that I'd stay in school till I was almost 30. Um, but nevertheless, I followed her advice in that regard. And then my father, as you point out, had grown up in the Depression, had very, very little money because, as you point out, he was a low-level government employee. Um, he was fascinated with uh, the possibility of investing. So we'd spend time uh, every week looking at uh, CD rates, certificate of deposit rates, which, as you know, are, are investments that banks offer. And he'd move his $1,000 around for an extra 25 uh, basis points, one quarter of a percentage point, uh, whenever the, the uh, CD would mature. So you, you, right, you knew the words basis points before uh, practically any kid in the world. Um, probably, I mean, because indeed, I don't, I think probably in by seventh and eighth grade, this concept had, had entered the vocabulary in the, in the Ferguson household. And on Friday evenings, we watched this show uh, called Wall Street Week with this uh, Louis Rukeyser, who uh, had this phenomenal shock of uh, gray, white hair and made these incredible puns and was very uh, sophisticated. So here's this guy talking about money and what's well, just the embodiment of, of, to me, Wall Street sophistication. And we had no money. We'd sit there you know, eating popcorn <laughs> and, and drinking Coke. Uh, you know, talking, you know, listening to these, these uh, luminaries talk about the ups and downs of the marketplace. And so all of that was occurring. And at the same time, linking my formal education and my financial literacy, I had this uh, math teacher in seventh and eighth grade who uh, every week, the week of April 15th, we'd stop doing whatever we're doing and we'd fill out uh, tax forms. She'd make up this... Uh, this uh, this uh, family with their income statement and balance sheet, and we'd figure out the returns on their investments and the capital gains on their stocks and figure out how to report that on the 1040. And so, as you point out, I had, to me, a normal at that point, but in hindsight, a pretty abnormal upbringing in which financial literacy was the thing of the, uh, of the dining room table. Um, and... Unfortunately, I had to say, Steve, uh, in the modern era, um, the degree of financial literacy is remarkably low. Uh, I think there are very, very few households uh, that benefit from the kind of uh, you know, day in and day out discussion of finance the way I did. And I think that has played into you know, some of the challenges that we're confronting here economically, including the retirement crisis. Well, you've advocated that uh, high schools uh, should um, perhaps on a mandatory basis, teach the basics of a financial literacy. That's absolutely right. I think at this stage, I may get the facts a little wrong, but I think only about half the states require any kind of financial literacy or financial training. Um, and that's obviously you know, much too little. One of the challenges, frankly, is um, not all the teachers uh, in public schools or even private schools are comfortable in this space. Um, and so I think we really have a great deal of work to do to educate both adults, who are then the ones who are going to educate uh, the children, on these fundamental, you know, financial financial questions. Um, and so, you know, there's there's actually work to be done there. And and unfortunately, the kinds of simple things that you know so well and I do around 
how inflation works with interest and the concept of compound interest and broad diversification um, uh, of, of assets are just, uh, you know, out of the realm of, of knowledge for, for far too many Americans. By the way, where your father was unusual in another way, he would, when he bought treasuries, he actually went to the Federal Reserve Bank in Richmond and bought him as an individual at a time when that must have been extremely rare. It was very rare. Um, you, you couldn't you couldn't put in a in a in a bid uh, to buy treasuries as an individuals, and they weren't readily available through brokers. And we didn't do it, you know, every auction, certainly, but every once in a while. Um, and that was one of my early, though, yeah, it was probably my earliest exposure to the Federal Reserve. But then my real interest in the Fed uh, kicked in uh, in 1965, 1966, in that time frame when Lyndon Johnson nominated Andrew Bremer to be the first African-American governor of the Federal Reserve. And that was, for me, an eye-opening moment um, because I had spent so much time, you know, with my father informally, you know, week in, week out, talking about interest rates, and then suddenly um, figured out uh, in a more formal way that the Federal Reserve was the organization that really set interest rates. And then having, you know, Andrew Bremer appointed, an African-American guy, came from a very modest background. Uh, His parents were sharecroppers, I think. Um, uh, you know, proved that it was it was doable uh, for a person who, who looked like me, um, and who grew up in very modest circumstances. So, uh, uh, where most kids might want to be astronauts or doctors or whatever, you wanted to be a Federal Reserve governor. Well, you know what I really wanted to be was what Andrew was was I did I wanted to be an economist, um, and at a very so I went to college and you know the only thing I was going to major in was economics. And absolutely, being a Federal Reserve governor was, you know, one of those things that one could do with an economics degree. Um, and so, without a doubt, uh, I was very, very fortunate to have that seed planted in the back of my mind at a very young age. And then, uh, lo and behold, in 1997, I had the opportunity to be uh, uh, sworn in to being uh, the third African American governor of the Federal Reserve, and then in 1999 became the first African-American vice chairman of the board. So, so much of what's happened to me goes back to, you know, those early formative uh, young teenage and college years. So, uh, you go to Harvard, you do a threefer. You uh, get an undergraduate degree, you get a law degree, you get a PhD in economics, and then you even did a stint in Cambridge. So you uh, leave, uh, you finally get out in the workforce, you do a bit of law, you do a stint with McKinsey, then you uh, join the Federal Reserve, as you pointed out, you become vice chairman in 1999. Describe for us, before we get to the retirement crisis, what many would call your finest hour, 9-11, September 11th, 2001. You turn out to be, in effect, the only guy in the house when this crisis hit, uh, your boss, Alan Greenspan, was in Japan. Other governors were away. You were there when the stuff hit the fan. Describe what you did. Um, you're right. Uh, many people think of that as my finest hour. Um, uh, so the day started um, with uh, my wife, who at that point was a senior staff person at the SEC 
you know, calling me um, and saying, you know, you should turn on the TV uh, just as I was getting settled into my desk. Something's happened. One of the towers is on fire, uh, the World Trade Center. So I did and witnessed, as did millions of Americans, I think, with shock and horror, the sight of a plane flying into uh, the second uh, tower. Um, at that point, a number of emotions clicked in. One is just the confusion of what what can be happening that that an airplane flies into the World Trade Center. You know, and you can imagine all the hypotheses one might have, but terrorism was certainly not one of them. Uh, the second thing that clicked in was, boy, you know, certainly you know, severe crisis in terms of loss of life and and tragedy. Um, and then the third thing that clicked in was. The World Trade Center, right in the heart of finance, uh, New York Stock Exchange, um, though most folks didn't think about it, uh, a lot of the payment system infrastructure runs ran at that point uh, under, near, or through uh, the World Trade Center. So the third thing that kicked in was serious problems with uh, the financial markets and the ability of businesses and ultimately individuals to pay their bills on the day. And that was the part uh, that I knew I had to focus in on. Uh, I couldn't fix the air traffic controller system. Unfortunately, I'm, uh, I'm not a first responder in a medical sense. Um, so my focus turned immediately to what's likely to happen in financial markets with two big concerns. One is the actual functioning of the markets uh, and the infrastructure, the plumbing that makes the markets work the payment system. And then the other is confidence. Um, having studied economics and a little bit about the Great Depression, again, through my father and other ways, one of the big challenges was the collapse of confidence. And you also have to remember that uh, in September 2001, the U.S. economy was still in a pretty soft recession. Um, and so that was not a good backdrop. So my Knowing those two things had to be focused on the functioning of the markets uh, and then confidence, um, I decided to do two or three things. First was after consultation and some encouragement on my part, we decided the Federal Reserve System would stay open and operating. Um, and that was the result of a fair amount of uh, discussion with me and the Reserve Bank president. Uh, this is a side you understand your listeners may not the Federal Reserve has 12 uh, uh, reserve banks around the country and that creates the whole system along with the Board of Governors in Washington. So the whole system had to stay open. We decided um, that we would issue a statement indicating not just that we're open and operating, but in technical terms, uh, we said we were willing to provide all the lending, all the liquidity that was necessary to keep the financial markets and financial systems stable. Well, that uh, statement is probably one of the uh, outstanding ones in central bank history. It said the Federal Reserve System is open and operating. The discount window is available to meet liquidity needs. Exactly. It was very simple. Um, some of the folks around me had encouraged a, a longer, more complicated statement dealing with, you know, the loss of life and many other things. And while I certainly felt uh, you know, how important that tragedy was, I made the judgment that in a moment of crisis, keeping a statement simple and focused on the things we could control was really important. 
And, you know, uh, to be very clear, while you describe this as my finest hour, um, I'd have to say, obviously, there are a large number of uh, Federal Reserve staffers uh, and other leaders in Washington and around the Federal Reserve system that performed heroically and frankly get uh, far too little attention. Um, but I would say um, immodestly uh, saved uh, the financial system uh, on that on that uh, terrific and horrific day. So this then gets to a topic of yours, the retirement crisis. And uh, it's people who don't have enough assets today to uh, younger people not being able to put aside assets, which gets to the student debt crisis. So describe the crisis and what you think needs to be done to uh, help meet it. Um, if we think about it, um, there are three gaps that are driving this issue. First, the modern retirement system, the so-called 401k system, the defined contribution system it's sometimes called, only covers about half of the workers. About half of the workers don't have access to a retirement plan, a 401k plan at work. So we have a coverage gap. The second gap that we have is the savings gap. And we've talked about that, you know, trillions unsaved, so to speak. Um, uh, and then we have to figure out how to close that gap. And then you've hinted at the third gap as well, which is uh, even for those who have coverage and even for those who have saved, their ability to convert that savings in a low-cost automatic way into you know, a, a paycheck for life or a personal pension or guaranteed income using an annuity, for many individuals, that's not available in the plan. And so they're forced to use one of these higher-cost retail options. And so we have to fix all three of these things. We have to get more people covered. We have to encourage people to save uh, more at an earlier age, and then we have to build in uh, the annuity option, the guarantee income option, the personal pension option into plans. So that's the solution space going forward, and that requires action by employers, by employees, uh, and by the government. Uh, and then the final thing that we haven't talked much about it is for everybody in the country the bedrock saving system is the social security system. Um, and we all know that the trustees of that system are saying to us that by roughly uh, 2033 or so, the social security system will only be able to pay out about 75% of uh, the benefits that uh, it has, has been its historic norm. And so that's another part of the uh, retirement uh, challenge that we have in the public sector as well as the private sector. Uh, looking uh, longer term, uh, just an aside on uh, Social Security, some have suggested that uh, obviously we're not going to make big changes to the system for those who are on and about to go on it. But for younger people, what you've done at TIA, TIAA uh, might be a model for younger people where a portion of their payroll, and you mentioned the 75% gap uh, that's going to come in 2033, we all know politically 
uh, the general budget, uh, the regular budget's going to meet any shortfall. Uh, people are not going to be deprived of their Social Security benefits. Uh, right. The money's going to come from somewhere. Right. But uh, for younger people, you uh, once made a statement about, and uh, you alluded to it earlier, about uh, TIAA uh, concerning teachers and college professors. You said, imagine if TIAA had not existed for the past 100 years and the average college professor, K-12 through teacher, researcher, think tank person had a 401k model versus what we, TIAA, provided. I'm not sure the professions would have been viable. I don't want to get overly emotional about it, but it's incredibly important to society. We stand as a validation that the private sector can, with no government support or interference, create a model that solves this problem. Do you think for younger people, a TIAA model could be the solution for the future so we don't have this problem forever? Oh, absolutely, I do. I mean, I stand behind all those words. One, you know, the importance of this in terms of creating you know, uh, the higher ed, the research, the cultural, the medical, um, the museum you know, industry that we have and sectors that we have in the U.S. But I also stand by the other part of the statement, which is uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, Bill Greeno, many others have built a model that I do think indicates that the private sector uh, is capable of providing safe and secure retirements for millions of Americans. Now, first, people sign up early in their careers. They didn't come in late. Secondly, uh, you know, the ability to take money out, frankly, is quite restricted. So we avoid what's called leakage, which is one of the problems in, in retirement. The third thing that makes our system work is, generally speaking, as people earn more, they save more. Uh, so there's an escalation in savings. Um, it helps that the employer provides, uh, in many cases, a pretty generous match. Um, so that's important. The long-term uh, investment approach with professionals across broadly diversified asset classes is quite important. You know, what people don't realize is that all of Social Security is invested in U.S. government securities. Um, obviously, we have a, we talked about a much more diversified portfolio. Right. Uh, and, you know, good advice. So, you know, there are many components to our model, uh, but the answer is yes, I do believe that we stand as a beacon of what a well-managed, well-conceptualized, well-executed private sector uh, program can do to solve a major social problem. Well, that brings us to uh, the SECURE Act, and I'll spell it out, uh, setting every community up for retirement enhancement. Only Washington could come up with something like that. <laughs> yes. The, the SECURE Act. So there is recognition that uh, even small steps can go a long ways. Uh, go through some of the things that are steps in the right direction in uh, getting, mm -hmm. getting a sensible long-term system in place. Happy to do that. Let me start with the point that you made, which is uh, in this era of, of um, the inability to find bipartisan compromise uh, and activity that reaches across the aisle. The SECURE Act, I think the number in Congress and the House was 417 to 3. Um, and so broad bipartisan support. And so what does it do? Um, it, uh, it 
improves or creates some improvements to uh, the ability of a provider, an employer, it's called a plan sponsor, to create uh, an annuity option by doing what's called a safe haven, safe harbor, which basically protects the employer if they choose a, a certain kind of annuity option. So they don't Every, have liability problems. So they don't have liability problems, which is a you know a big issue in society, obviously. Um, it adopts one of the things that we have in our own company that you've talked about, which is the portability of annuity from an employer to an employer so that the individual doesn't lose her or his savings as they move from one place to another and if it has to re-enroll and that re-enrollment process often creates what's called leakage where money comes out of the plan. Uh, it requires something that's very important, which is um, a disclosure about the lifetime income that one can get uh, from the savings that you have. Um, it's a complicated thing, but uh, obviously with Social Security, it's a little easier when you get that statement each year. Exactly. Certain, certain, certain things, here, here's what you can expect each month. But you exactly. think it can be done with uh, with with uh, traditional 401ks or new kinds of uh, plans like that? We absolutely think it can be done. It has been done. We do it ourselves. And so one of the things that we realize is within what individuals uh, do when they understand what they what their likely um, monthly paycheck is uh, in retirement, they do two things. One is they start to think more about using that option. And so the rate of annuitization tends to go up if you are talking about that through your working years. And secondly, um, I believe it's also true that you see an increase in savings. And so getting an exposure about what the lifetime income is likely to be has these very positive effects. Uh, another thing that the SECURE Act does, which is it increases um, or increases the age for what's called required minimum distribution. Right now, Steve, when an individual reaches 70 and a half, she or he is required to start taking money out of their savings, their retirement savings plan. But the issue ultimately is, as we are all, as um, for older people, longevity is increasing. Uh, it really doesn't make so much sense to force distributions when people probably should be continuing to save because their life expectancy has gone up. So this act um, increases the age to 72. Um, and it also eliminates the age limits for contributing to traditional IRAs. And so what it basically says is, if you're still working, regardless of your age, you should be able to save more. And that's trying to close the savings gap. So I've just identified three or four or five things in this uh, SECURE Act that we think would be the beginnings of uh, fixing this uh, retirement challenge and hopefully avoiding a more severe retirement crisis. This gets to the student debt crisis, which you've spoken about now, approaching about $1.6 trillion. And uh, you say, point out that it affects people's ability to save for retirement, not to mention marriage and children. When you come out of college, you suddenly have a mortgage without a house. You're not going to be saving very much. That's exactly right. And we've done some surveys that do suggest that individuals um, with uh, student debt have delayed many you know, uh, steps in life, including saving for retirement and the other things that you've talked about. Um, I think as we think about the student debt crisis, 
one has to go beyond the big number, the 1.6 trillion, and really start to think about different categories of people who are affected differently. Um, and the first class is uh, individuals who took on even a modest amount of debt, but never completed their degree. Uh, and they're the ones who disproportionately tend to um, uh, tend to default on the loans. Um, ironically, I believe it's true that the average debt for a person defaulting is about $9,000. It's not a huge number. So th that's one pocket. At the other end, you have uh, individuals from law school, medical school, business school. They may have very large uh, debt outstanding, but they have the ability in their high earning professions to pay off that debt. And then there's a population in the middle that we're talking about, um, and they may find that their debt is modest, they work really hard to pay it off, they do the right things, uh, and they are delaying some of their life decisions. So there's an intersection between the retirement issue and the student debt issue, but the student debt issue itself has uh, a great deal of nuance and different segments to worry about. So how did this debt happen? Is it the, what they call the Bennett hypothesis, that for all the best intentions, government help ended up uh, having sticker prices go up at four times the rate of inflation. What? How did we get to this situation? Well, a couple of things. One is, um, first, we've, we've always had an American education system in which the student, the parent, the school all have some skin in the game. Right. So um, you know, that's always that's always been true, particularly the private system, but more broadly. Um, and, and to be fair, I, I think it's appropriate for the student and maybe the parent as well as the school to have some skin in the game. And what I mean is that, you know, the student is getting something beneficial out of this. You know, I am a prime example of the ability of a really good education to take you out of the lower middle class and, and move you up the socioeconomic ladder. So that's the first thing. We have a system that always had an expectation that the student would contribute. This became a much bigger challenge after 2008. Um, and what happened is a combination of things. First is, um, not surprisingly, when you are in a recession, many people who would otherwise enter the labor force decide to go to school or stay in school. Um, and that is one of the things that certainly happened then. Secondly, as you observe, the cost of higher education has been rising relatively rapidly compared to other parts of the society. Uh, and that is due to the fact that um, higher education is a service business and service business prices prices have tended to uh, go up more than society overall because there's um, less opportunity to uh, uh, improve the productivity of going to school, so to speak. You, you know, you, a teacher can only teach a certain number of students, even with online capabilities. Um, and the third so thing back that in happened, the 1960s, they used to talk about the barber. Barber exactly. can only cut so much hair. <laughs> right, and the same thing is true. Uh, there's a whole field of economics, not to get too technical, named for a guy named William Baumol, B-A-U-M-O-L, who was a professor at Princeton. And he was one of the first people, he's now deceased, but one of the first people to observe this phenomenon. And it's called Baumol's disease, 
which is that uh, the service sector uh, tends not to be able to uh, increase output very rapidly. The, the other great example, by the way, is uh, about an orchestra, you know, a larger orchestra, a smaller orchestra. They can't play Beethoven's Ninth more quickly than Beethoven himself expected to be played and get to the same outcome. So that's the second element is it's the nature of education. The third element, frankly, um, is there's so many other uh, different types of educational uh, opportunities now. There's community colleges and state schools and for-profit schools and research institutions. Um, all that variety didn't exist several decades ago. So you put all those three things together, um, more people going to school, more a greater variety of schools, and a general societal expectation that students have skin in the game. And that's how you ended up at this place. Um, because as you well know, people weren't talking about student debt crisis in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. It's a phenomenon of the early 2000s, and it got triggered by those three things. Um, that's, so that's, that's sort of how we got to this place, and now we have to work our way out of it. Um, and that, I think, is going to take you know, quite a bit of time, take quite a bit of discipline, and we're going to have to figure out the intersection of public responsibility and private responsibility, which, back to your point, is, again, one of those flashpoints that we see being talked about uh, in the political discourse of the day. Um, this gets to a question before we let you go, and that is, should everyone go to college? Uh, there's talk about why don't uh, a lot of these kids, they can always go online if they want more education, but jobs are going begging and HVAC, uh, trucking, welding, uh, get good pay don't have the debt. What are your thoughts on that, that uh, we need to be uh, more and more uh, fine-tuned in uh, how, 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 who, who gets educated when? So I'm, I, I'm completely open to the thought and also cautious about it. And let me explain both of those things. We know from looking at Europe, particularly Germany, that an apprentice system can work if you have an economy that's driven by manufacturing. Right. Um, and many people you know, sort of look at that. We also know that we have now you know, online courses uh, where people are graded and you get certificates of one sort or another. And one can actually prove that you know, out of literally, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people, you got you know, one of the best test scores and, and you know, an online training class that validates knowledge and capabilities. And so I think we should be open to the possibility that there are many different ways to develop the skills that are called for. The caution I have is twofold. One, frankly, um, many people are worried that in a society as ethnically and racially and geographically diverse as we are, a risk is that you know, higher ed will be available only to some so and others stratified society get a stratified society and so imagine little roger ferguson um public school lower middle income african-american uh out of washington dc you know you can imagine you know my parents might have been anxious if it looked like i was being you know tracked in one direction and they had visions of me going someplace else particularly if they thought that stratification was driven by by race, ethnicity, or something of that sort. 
So that's one issue we have to confront in this society that makes it slightly different from, let's say, a more homogeneous society such as Germany. The second issue that I think we really have to confront is the uncertainty about what the next set of jobs is going to be. Um, and, you know, so many of the jobs that we have today could not have been imagined 15 or 20 years ago. Right. Uh, the flip side is one of the great things about having so many people go through our kind of higher education system is that many people think it is one of the causes for the dynamism that we have in America because we have folks who are trained to be critical thinkers and can adjust, to, to. Can adjust and they think in a very interdisciplinary way and create solutions in a way that's not true in other places. Um, and you know, without denigrating any society, many people think it's not an accident that the U.S. has some of the big tech leaders because we have a system that educates people both technically, but also to think critically and to solve problems in a way that might be different from other societies. So I know that's sort of a complicated, nuanced answer, but I think we should be open to these new approaches without necessarily getting to the place where we say, you know, we want to discourage people from, from experiencing, you know, some of higher education. Um, and, and we have to just be quite mindful of the balance there and not necessarily try to adopt a model from some other society that doesn't really fit with who we are and ignores the great benefit that we've had from having uh, a higher ed system in which I think now the statement is 90% of people who graduate from high school get some exposure to post-secondary education. I'm not sure I'd want to see that number drop. What I'd prefer to see is an increase in the completion rates because now the completion rate is only about 60% and it's much lower for African-Americans and, and other minorities. So, you know, I, I think we need to uh, you know, be mindful of the strength that we have and figure out the solutions while also being open to some of these newer approaches to education. Roger, thank you very much for your time. We could uh, go on forever uh, with your observations and uh, appreciate your being with us. Thank you. Steve Forbes, thank you very much for giving the opportunity. Um, it was, a, from my standpoint, a great conversation. I really appreciate the time that you took. So thank you. Well, you've had a great career. Very inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Steve. Take care. If you haven't already done so, you should be inspired to go out and check your retirement plan. And by the way, make sure your kids and grandkids learn more about finance. They could start by listening to this interview with Roger Ferguson. And now, I hope you'll also be inspired by, you guessed it, my reads of the week. One, Japan's VAT blunder, a consumption tax increase hits growth. This is an editorial from the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com. Once again, Japan is raising its national sales tax. Once again, it slams the economy. They put in the sales tax several years ago to pay for future benefits, pensions and the like, social costs, but all it has done is slowed the economy down. We saw the same phenomenon in Europe in the 1970s and 80s when they enacted these massive sales taxes. Their growth rates since have lagged the United States. Some people just don't learn from experience. Another article is entitled, Judy Shelton is not what the Fed wants, she's what the Fed needs. 
Judy Shelton, an accomplished economist, has been nominated for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, but it has met resistance, including some Republicans. In this article by Nathan Lewis, which you can find on Forbes.com, he makes the case that she'll bring critical thinking into this bubble of the Federal Reserve. Joseph Schumpeter, the great economist, once said, to get to the truth, you have to ask the right questions. Judy Shelton will ask the right questions. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.